Welcome back to the Hawk Zone Podcast, your look into KU Athletics, brought to you by the Topeka Capital Journal. My name is Matt Galloway. I am the KU beat reporter for CJ Online and HawkZone.com. It's the first KU Hawk Zone podcast of the new sports season, and I couldn't be any happier to announce that we have a very special guest on this week's episode. A lot of you longtime readers of the Capital Journal will recognize his name from the byline for four years that he held covering KU on the uh, KU beat, Tully Corcoran of TheBigLead.com now. Tully, how's it going, and uh, what have you been up to? Uh, well, I'm gutting my house right now down here in Houston, so... Um I've been busy, but it's nice to take a break and talk about sports. Yeah, I wanted to give you a shout-out for uh, coming on and, and making time out of doing that. I know you've, you've posted some stuff on Twitter. Some, uh, you've been kind of able to find a little bit of a humorous side, some stuff that Alexa is <laughs> kind of some bad timing from Alexa, Amazon, uh, and some of the songs right. that it's played. And, but uh, yeah, certainly ev- I can speak for everybody at the Capitol Journal, and I'm sure everybody that read you for all those years and saying that our thoughts are with you and everybody else down in Houston. Um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Orange Bowl team that you covered, the 2007 KU football team that won the 2008 Orange Bowl game. Uh, and I, I say that because they're celebrating the team on Saturday in KU's season opener at 6 p.m. against Southeast Missouri State at Memorial Stadium. And I saw a tweet from you a few weeks ago that kind of really piqued my interest and kind of made me want to get you on as a guest. Somebody asked on Twitter, what could you talk about for 30 minutes with absolutely no preparation? And you quote tweeted that and responded to 2007 Kansas football team. So with that in mind, I'm going to pull the old uh, journalist trope and just say, talk about the 2007 KU football team, and I'll go ahead and just mute my mic for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> well, um, you know, that team was, obviously it was a great team, so it's it's always fun to talk about, to talk about great teams, but uh, it was also just a really, really um, fascinating team. I mean, it just, it had some amazing characters on it. You start with Mark Mangino, who, you know, I don't think I need to describe for any KU fans, but, um, you know, he was just, you know, he was the keeps on wood guy. And he just, it, it finally that one year, he exceeded everybody's wild, ex- wildest expectations. And the thing that to me was so crazy about that in retrospect is I remember that was the first year that I was on the KU beat. So, uh, maybe like July of that year, um, Kevin Haskin and I just went into Lou Perkins' office and, you know, Kevin was introducing me to Lou as the new beat writer and, uh, you know, we were just going to jolly for a while. And we sat there in Lou's office for 20, 30 minutes and, you know, this is July of 2007, football season's coming up. <laughs> and Lou just straight up says to us, it's got to be eight wins this year or else for Mangino. <laughs> Yeah, and <laughs> that's pretty. You know, historically one. speaking, yeah. eight eight wins is a lot for a Kansas football team. I mean, that's probably I don't know how many times that's happened without looking it up, but it can't be more than <laughs> fifteen times in the whole history of the program. So <clears throat> you knew that the bar was set high, and you also knew from that that Lou was kind of planning on firing Mangino. <laughs> I mean, there was little doubt that that was what was going on there. I think Lou always denied this, of course, but I think he wanted to hire a football coach. Um, Lou had met Turner Gill in 2005 
and apparently been very charmed by him. And I think what happened was when Lou met Turner Gill in 2005, he decided to hire Turner Gill at Kansas and was just waiting for the opportunity to fire Mark Mangino. They had been kind of a disappointing team in 06, a lot of talent, but they, they blew some close games. And I think Lou was assuming that that was what was going to happen again. And he was going to fire Mangino at the end of the 07 season and then hire Turner Gill. And look what happened. Mangino goes 12-1, and one, uh, AP Coach of the Year, wins the Orange Bowl. Taylor gets a first-place vote in the final AP poll. And Mangino just sticks it right in Lou Perkins' eye. <laughs> I mean, it's just an amazing story. It's so funny to me. Right, and just what that meeting you had with Lou Perkins is definitely just a whole bunch of foreshadowing for what would ultimately happen a couple years later when oh, things yeah. started to go south and just the complete cliff KU has fallen off of. And to, to me, if you're the kind of athletic director who falls for a coach like Turner Gill, just his personality, it's easy to kind of see on the other end of the spectrum you have Mark Mangino, and that kind of coach might not be uh, what you're looking for to lead a football team. If, you, if you're into Turner Gill, you're not going to be into Mark Mangino unless you just have a very diverse <laughs> right. taste in the kind of coaches you're hiring. I think maybe Lou and Mark were possibly a case of guys that were uh, so similar that they didn't get along mm-hmm. in certain ways. Um, and I shouldn't say that I know they didn't get along. Uh, I, I can't. I can't really speak to the nature of their relationship in that much detail, but I know that on a professional level, it was, there was always kind of this question hanging in the air about was Lou going to want to fire Mangino and hire his own guy? I mean, that's ADs typically like to do that thing, do that. And then at that point, Lou's only real hire at KU had been Bonnie Hendrickson, the women's basketball coach. Um, so he, Lou had raised a whole bunch of money and I think it'd been, uh, I mean, everybody considered him to be a huge success in that regard, but these things that were happening with the basketball program and the football program that were good were really not things that, that traced back to him. Those weren't his hires. Um, and so, you know, I just, I think everybody kind of thought in the back of their mind that Lou was eventually going to look for a way to fire Mangino. He did do that. It just uh, it didn't happen um, when he thought it would. And you know, I you look back and of course, Mark Mangino deserves a, a ton of credit for what happened there. But between Todd Reesing and Akib Talib, they had leadership and toughness and competitiveness and spirit that just radiated throughout that whole team. I mean, I say to this day, I think Akib Talib is the most underrated college football player of the last 10 years. And he was a first team all American. <laughs> you know, I just, he was, he was unbelievably good that year. Uh, everybody remembers reason, but man, go on YouTube and look at some of those old KU clips and <laughs> you will see Akib Talib is a man among boys out there. He was incredible. 
Yeah, and it's what we all saw at the Orange Bowl on the national stage when he had that 60-yard interception return that really put KU in the driver's seat in that game. I'm going to get into more specifics about that season here in just a little bit, but I kind of want to keep it general and talk about Mangino just a little bit. What are your thoughts on kind of the aftermath, the uh, kind of the way that it all unraveled and kind of fell off a cliff? And do you think kind of looking back, uh, KU might have taken what he was able to accomplish at KU for granted and might have forgotten the struggles that had existed at the program really since before he got there. And uh, I'm doing another journalist. No, no, but I'm going to ask you a second question (laughs) as part of that. What are your thoughts on Shan Zinger and the current staff with David Beatty kind of mending the fence with, with coach Mangino? Sure. Well, um, you know, I guess, uh, first of all, um, that I have, I have some regrets about the way I covered that whole thing. Uh, I was young and, had not been through a situation like that. And I think not just me, but I think most of the media got taken for a little bit of a ride by Lou Perkins in that whole deal. Uh, you know, he would leak things and if you get information, you publish it, but it, it kind of, I think the narrative, I'm not saying Mangino was a saint. I'm not even saying he didn't deserve to be fired, but I think the portrayal of him during that kind of critical time where Lou was setting it up to fire him and doing that investigation. I, I think the coverage was a little bit unfair to Mangino, not grossly unfair, but if I had it to do over again, I think I would be able to see through some of that um, mm-hmm. a little more than I did. And I forgot what your other question was. Oh, I just say, are you surprised that after 10 years, or I guess, are you surprised that it took 10 years or do you think that it's uh, pretty soon that they've been able to mend the fence? And and do you think it was the right move by the current administration? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was the right move. Um, I wouldn't say I'm surprised by it. You know, time heals all wounds, as they say. And I, I think most KU fans have a soft spot for Mangino and, I'm sure are going to be very happy, um, you know, to see him honored like that. He's, I mean, he's the most successful football coach they've ever had there. Uh, or at least he had the best season they've ever had there. And, you know, took that program from the absolute dredges to about as high as you can go. I mean, late in the year, they were in play to play for a national title. It's just <laughs> to, I think to shut that guy out forever um, would have been, I don't think that would have been right. Um, I'm not surprised that Shane has done it. Uh, I I think it's probably, I think this is good timing for it actually, because this is the first season in quite a few seasons that there is a little bit of juice with the football program. I mean, there is some optimism and that there's some talent and, you know, there might be some more wins and, you know, you, you bring Mangino back, I think it calls to memory um, those successes and what's possible at Kansas. Um, so I don't know if that was went into Shane's thinking or not, but uh, I think it is, I think it's good timing for that reason. Yeah, it definitely feels like good timing for the 10-year anniversary, kind of just the way fate has kind of worked out with the amount of Big 12 caliber players the team has, I would say, kind of being unmatched since 2009, 2010 even. Uh, are you? I guess let me phrase this a different way, um, because I certainly see what you're talking about with fans. I think the fact that the team has been so abysmal since Mark Mangino left has really 
kind of changed the outlook of, of fans, even though I think there were a large contingent of people uh, who were supportive of him at the time. I think it's only grown since then because of how dark t- the times have gotten for the team. Are you surprised that Mangino came back, just having covered him and having been around him? Are you surprised that, because uh, he needed some time. Uh, whenever he got the offer to join the Hall yeah. of Fame, he, he needed some time to think about it. Are you surprised that he, he needed some time to think about it or, or that he made the decision to come back? <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if he had just told KU to pound sand because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he has, he has done that plenty of times in his life. Uh, but I, I get the sense just from following him on Twitter and things. Um, you know, I don't know him that well. I just covered him for a few years, but uh, I get the sense that, you know, his, his coaching career seems to be over and he seems to be in more of a reflective stage of his life. And I'm guessing as, as most men do as they age, that he's mellowed a little bit and, uh, you know, has, has gotten over that. I, I, I know that he, that he obviously thought he was screwed by KU and, and mainly by Lou and, uh, and maybe he was, but he was also paid a great deal of money after that too. So yeah. maybe, maybe he wanted to wait till all those checks cleared before he, uh, mended the fences. <laughs> right. All right, well, I want to talk to you a little bit about that Orange Bowl team, uh, just kind of in some specifics. Did it feel like going into that season, I know you, you talked about 2006, they had the talent, but they kind of had some, some late losses and some just a kind of an air of disappointment at the end of the season. Obviously, nobody in town was expecting an Orange Bowl, but I think the preseason prediction had them as fourth in the Big 12 North. Did you think that mm-hmm. that was a fair assessment of where the team was at? And when you heard eight wins was the benchmark, uh, obviously they reached 12, but would you have put money on them reaching eight wins before that season? I would never put money on KU football under any <laughs> circumstances, but, um, <laughs> but that was a team that you, you knew it had some talent and, and because of the way that Reesing had played in like in relief, um, you know, against Colorado. And I can't remember exactly how much he played uh, the rest of that season, but that, you know, there was definitely going into camp. There was a quarterback competition. I think a lot of people forget that, but it was unclear who was going to be the starter, whether it was going to be him or Kerry Meyer. And a lot of people thought it was going to be Meyer. And I think pretty soon, uh, Reesing, I think Reesing won that job a lot earlier in camp than anybody let on. Um, but the point is you had two quarterbacks that were good players uh, and smart players. And when had Mangino ever had that? I mean, that had been the thing that just killed him year after year. I mean, you know, that, that game, they almost beat Texas when, when Vince Young got him at the end. They had their fourth string quarterback finishing that game. <laughs> Yeah. John Nielsen went in and finished that game. I mean, Brian, uh, I think it was Brian Luke was the starter that day. Um, and that had just been Mangino's story at KU the whole time. It, you know, his teams always played hard. His defenses were usually fundamentally sound. He, he liked to put his best athletes on that side of the ball. He had a Big 12 defensive player of the year and Nick Reed. I mean, it, it, there were some skill position players that seemed good. Jake Sharp was in the fold. Desmond Briscoe. But it was just always the quarterback. They could never get a quarterback that was good and healthy. And then here they, they finally had two, and probably the two best quarterbacks. I mean, I bet you if Todd Reesing had gone to K-State or Duke, 
Uh, <laughs> I bet you Kerry Meyer would have put up crazy numbers in 2007. Um, I don't think they'd have won 12 games because Reesing was a magical alien who descended <laughs> to Lawrence for reasons that can't be explained. But um, but they would have been they would have had a good season. I I think Mangino would have saved his job in 2007 even without Todd Reesing. So there was a sense that, of course, I thought eight wins was on the high side of optimistic. Um, but I, I think you could say it was, it seemed like it was within the realm of possibility. They weren't playing Texas. They weren't playing Oklahoma and they weren't playing Texas tech. And so you kind of had this schedule that opened up for them. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Kerry Meyer. You look at how well he turned out as a wide receiver. It just seemed like that, that year and the, and the following year, just kind of a, a charmed situation for the team and where everything that Mangino kind of tried to turn to gold. Uh, I wanted to mention the start of the season, four straight blowouts by an average of 47.75 points, but they were all at home against far inferior competition. I know Central Michigan kind of had a decent team that year, not terrific. Was there any skepticism after that? I know, you know, four straight wins, you can't, you know, hold your nose at that too much and certainly in emphatic fashion, but what were you thinking after those four wins? Was that kind of, this is just usual standard fare for these big 12 teams kind of routing inferior opponents at home in that era. Yeah, there was a good bit of that because you just, you just didn't know exactly what you were seeing. I mean, their, their offense was really impressive in those blowouts and, you know, it, they, they looked talented. They weren't making mistakes. I mean, racing was magical right out of the gate. Um, but you know, it's against Southeast Louisiana and Toledo and mm-hmm. some of these guys. And so you just don't really know. And, as a matter of fact, it was probably, it might have been eight weeks into the year when Mangina was still getting asked questions about his schedule. and People would bring up the fact that you're not playing Texas, you're not playing Oklahoma. <laughs> I remember at one point he said, he said something like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy that the football coach at Kansas is being asked questions about his schedule in the year that he beat Texas A&M, Kansas State, and Colorado. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was he was annoyed by that narrative and I don't blame him, but it's true. They didn't play the best teams in the big 12 that year. Um, that doesn't take away from their season, but at the time, as everyone in the media is trying to figure out how good is this team really? Um, that was, that was totally part of the conversation. Like these guys are doing great and they look awesome, but who have they really played? And that was just the case um, almost until the Missouri game. Yeah, and it's, I mean, just looking from afar, I wasn't, uh, I was still at uh, junior college at the time, but it kind of seemed like something that even kept them through the the, the Orange Bowl game, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but a, a lot of people saying, why are they in this game? Why, is, why aren't other teams in this game? Why isn't Missouri in this game? And it's something where I think the team really needed to validate their position in that game by winning it. And I, I think that victory kind of validated the season, the season and kind of put away the narrative that they hadn't really played anybody. Since you look at Virginia tech, I think, I think they were the number three ranked team in BCS or, or the AP poll going into that game. They just missed out on the national title game, if I recall correctly. So uh, that kind of just validated that, even though I think it was a year when they managed to avoid playing, as you mentioned, Oklahoma, Texas, and Bill Snyder, and I want to get into that game now. A thirty to twenty-four <laughs> victory at number twenty-four K State, one of only three ranked teams that KU would play that year. Uh, but it's notable because it was the only victory against K State in Manhattan since nineteen ninety. Akib Talib sealed it with a pick 
of Josh Freeman with two minutes left. Obviously, it's the Ron Prince era. Anybody that happens to also be a K-State fan who's listening right now probably just turned us off. But what do you remember about that game, and, and how big of a benchmark was that, just given how it had been so, so long since they'd won in Manhattan? Well, the, the I'll tell you, the number one play I remember from that game was they K-State lined up Jordy Nelson on a keep to leave one-on-one, and Jordy just beat him you know, for 60 yards or something for a touchdown. And um, at the time, you know, I knew Aqib Tlaib and Jordy Nelson were good players, but look at us now. They're these, like, old NFL veterans now. I mean, that was just an amazing matchup from a talent standpoint. And, you know, Aqib got him back at the end with that pick, as you mentioned. Um, it, you know, the, the the Ron Prince era was, was marked by a lot of calamity, but uh, K-State played well in that game. I think they picked off Reesing three times, um, and he seemed a little bit off. It was one of his only bad games that whole year. Uh, and, you know, KU kind of had to I, – I don't remember that much about how that game unfolded, um, but I remember thinking, like, KU looks like a much better team, but they're not pulling away from these guys. And – um, you know, that's, I guess that's a rivalry game kind of thing. And obviously KU's players and everybody understands how big of a deal it is for KU to go into Manhattan and win it. It hasn't happened much in my lifetime. <laughs> so, um, I think they might've been a little nervous, plus it was early in the year. Um, and you know, it was, you saw that happen. And I think that was kind of, that was a sign I took at the time as a sign that, okay, we're, we're seeing maybe a more realistic picture of how good this team is. You know, they're, they might struggle on the road a little bit. Um, you can, you can get to racing and that really turned out not to be the case as the year went on. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the KU followed that up by walloping Baylor 58 to 10, not too much to talk about in that game. I don't think if there's anything you want to note, we can note, but, uh, I want to move on it real was quick delayed to- by lightning. Oh, right. They had like a two and a half hour delay, right? Yeah. And then I think Marcus Herford ran a kickback for a touchdown right after the delay. He was like, okay, let's all just uh-huh. go home. <laughs> now, now, was that a night game that kind of screwed you over with deadlines? I know that uh, deadlines are something that are always I don't think front so. and center in my mind. I don't recall that being a morning affair. Ah, that's good. <laughs> I, I, I would be perfectly okay if every game that KU played started at 11, basketball and football. 11 a.m. So, kick, please. Yeah, 11 a.m. Yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, now I think when I first started to really notice just watching from afar, KU turn it or just kind of get victories that I didn't quite expect so much, uh, Colorado and Texas A&M not ranked, but it showed what the defense could do. They had 19 to 14 victory at Colorado and a 19 to 11 victory at Texas A&M. Do you think the defense from that year gets the credit it deserves? I know it, you know, bend, but don't break is such a sports cliche, but that was, that was a defense that was good at stopping the run. And and when they needed to, it seemed like every game that the offense had that it didn't perform well, and there weren't many, but every time it did, the defense rose to the occasion. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, I mean, think about the secondary on that team. Akeem Tlaib, Chris Harris, Daryl Stuckey, and then the other safety changed a little bit. I think Justin Thornton was more the end of the year, and um, ah, blanking on the other guy's name right now, but uh, I, you know, a, a very, very talented secondary. Um, they had really good linebackers. Uh, 
the weakness of that team was really the, the pass rush. They, they struggled with that all year, but then in the middle, you had James McClinton, who I'm sure everybody remembers in that Texas A&M game, makes this incredible play on fourth down to stop Javorski Lane mm-hmm. um, and seal that game. I mean, it was fourth and one in College Station. They're doing all their yells and stuff, and the stands are shaking, and Javorski Lane's on the sideline doing his little J-train motion about to get this guaranteed first down. And McClinton, like, slips through the line and tackles him for, I think, a two- or three-yard loss and seals a win at Texas A&M, which is amazing. I mean, I I was on the radio in College Station the day before that game, and I think Kansas was 6-0 or 7-0 at that point. And, uh, you know, these these guys were asking me all the questions about, you know, okay, so how, how good is this team really? Like, who have they played? We talked about that a little bit, and then they asked me for my prediction. I told them I thought Kansas was going to win the game, and they they thought I was crazy. I was like, no, listen, guys, they have talented players on offense. They have a very disciplined defense with good players. They're good on special teams. They don't make mistakes. They're not going to screw themselves. So, And then that's what you see. It was not a great offensive day for them. But they didn't make any mistakes, and they got out of there. They held held A&M to 11, score 19, you know, keeps on wood. Right, and, I mean, you just – you look at the 30-plus game road losing streak that KU is on right now, and you kind of are amazed that they're able to put together, at any point in their history, a back-to-back stretch of victories at Colorado and A&M. I know it's (laughs) something that – Definitely KU fans wouldn't be taking for granted right now. Uh, one more note about that game. Brandon McAnderson had a career high 183 yards in that AM victory. He's the guy that uh-huh. really came, came on at the end of his uh, his career at KU. And he had a very important speech that guys have talked about before the Orange Bowl game. What do you remember about covering Brandon McAnderson? And I know he's kind of transitioned to some radio opportunities since he uh, since oh. he left KU. Has that surprised you at all? No, he was wonderful. Um he was like, I have not met very many athletes in my career that had kind of like the, the sense of self-awareness and perspective and sense of humor that he had. Um, he just, he, he was just so interesting at really a kind of a go-to player for the media. If, if you needed to get some insight or, you know, something interesting from an offensive player, he was, he was great. He, he, um, he understood how to, how to talk about things. And, you know, he would say, he would say interesting things. And, and I think it was because he knew Mangino trusted him. I mean, he was a veteran player. Um, and so I, I think he had a little bit of leeway, whereas <laughs> some other guys like, you know, Joe Mortensen will say, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably got in trouble a little bit more. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. Yeah, he definitely profiled out just, you know, kind of looking from the outside in as that locker room leader type and another type like Reesing and Tlaib that you mentioned, kind of the veteran leaders that when they kind of go away, you you see the program kind of enter what the period it entered after that. Uh, Now, I think other than the Orange Bowl, which is notable, obviously, because it was a BCS Bowl victory. I think the most signature victory for KU that year was the 76 to 39, just complete steamrolling over, over Nebraska at home. The most points surrendered by the Nebraska defense in its entire history. 
you know, you just you look at you look at Ron Prince, and here's another one, and and Bill Callahan, just KU on a on a coach killing tour that year. Uh, what are your <laughs> memories of that game, and kind of was that post game the most jovial you you kind of had seen Mark Mangino in the regular season? <laughs> It was sometime in the third quarter. I don't remember how many points KU had at that point, but um, they were just rolling up yards. I mean, every every handoff seemed to go for 15 yards. And <laughs> I was sitting next to Kurt Kaywood, who was the <laughs> columnist. Excuse me. Kurt was the columnist for the, the Capital Journal at the time. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> he pulls out his media guide about halfway through the third quarter and goes, you think Mark Mangino would like to be the guy that scored the most points ever against Nebraska? Because <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And sure enough, Gino just kept pouring it on. I mean, they, they, he did, he did, uh, I think he pulled the starters or most of them, maybe about midway through the, the fourth quarter, maybe even earlier than that. I, they, they had a shot at 100 that day if they had really wanted it. Uh, mm-hmm. Also remember, I don't know if you can still find this online, but there was an amazing video of this Nebraska fan just absolutely losing it over that. <laughs> you know, I will I will look for that as soon as we're done years. recording. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you know that was a 38 year losing streak to Nebraska, and even though that was not a good Nebraska team and it wasn't a good Nebraska coach, uh, if you're Nebraska, you don't lose to Kansas, and you expect you especially don't lose 76 to 39 it it was just one of those days obviously where everything went right for KU but it to me it really opened up the sense of what that team could do and how good they really were uh I think everybody thought they would beat Nebraska that day or had a very good opportunity to but I don't I didn't expect it to be a blowout. I mean, who can imagine blowing out Nebraska? It just, it just right. doesn't happen. No, that's that's a sentence that's uh, rarely ever constructed in the in the English language. Uh, but you know, I think <laughs> if you told KU fans you're going to give up 39 points to a kind of a bad Nebraska team at yeah. home going into that game, there would be some a little bit of dread. But just the the way the offense was just able to just uh, spark into a powder keg, just explode all over Nebraska. Uh, you know, certainly, that's a good point and. Um, it's, I think it's something that probably most people overlooked that day because of just, uh, how dominant the offense had been, but you know, that KU team, if it had a weakness, it was against teams that were good at passing. And that was one thing that Nebraska could do that year. They, they had a decent kind of downfield passing game and, you know, because KU hadn't played Texas tech and, and some of the other, you know, in 2007, Texas A&M was still running the beer. Like <laughs> almost everybody they played was kind of a ground-oriented offense, and Colorado yeah. was under center. Um, it was a lot of that. K State was that way, and and so y- you kept wondering what's going to happen when they face one of these teams that runs a spread, such as Missouri. You know, um, right? You knew uh, you knew it was going to give them some trouble and that Nebraska game I think was a sign that that was that really was going to be a problem at some point uh it's just everybody that was not the day to talk about it no yeah maybe that's one for the follow 
they KU followed that up with a couple of victories. They had a nationally televised victory over Oklahoma State, thirty or forty-three to twenty-eight in Stillwater. It was a Akib Talib redemption game against Darius Bowman, who in two thousand six had thirteen catches for three hundred yards against him. He had twenty-two yards on four catches in this game and left with an injury. They were ten and zero for the first time in eight since eighteen ninety-nine, and they followed it up with a f- emphatic. Uh, 45-7 to victory over ISU. They would be on the Sports Illustrated cover the next week. Anything notable about those two games before we get into the game at Arrowhead? Yeah, I think the Oklahoma State game probably created the best sparky highlight. Um, there was a play in that game. Musburger was doing the game, which made it that much better. But, you know, it was one of those classic racing plays. He scrambles around, almost gets sacked four times, and comes up and makes like a 35 pass to Dexton Fields. And Musburger's doing the call, and he goes, Shades of Doug Flutie. And, yeah. You know, that Musburger says something like that um, resonates. People remember that. Elevated Todd Racing into the national conversation. And I think probably. Uh, Probably inspired another Tom Keegan column uh, touting uh, racing seismic candidacy. Yeah, the campaign was on at that point. I wanted to ask you kind of as an aside real quick before we get into the, the first loss of the season. At what point did you kind of covering this team think, you know, holy crap, they could go undefeated? Was that something you ever thought? Or, or is that something that you, you kind of looked and you saw how the schedule played out? You saw what they did to K-State and Nebraska and you... You kind of thought, okay, if they can get past those two teams, they could, you know, they're evenly matched with Missouri, as we saw in those two seasons. Mm-hmm. You, you start to think, okay, well, yeah. then they have to play Oklahoma. And then you've got, mm-hmm. obviously, the national title game. But at what point did you start thinking this team is just playing with house money? At at about, uh, man, I'm going to say maybe, if I'm not getting the schedule mixed up, Sometime after that Oklahoma State win, that would have been what their ninth win. Is that about right? Uh, I think that would have. Yeah, I think that would have been their tenth win. Tenth win. Yeah, uh, around that time, you know, you start going, okay, well, they're they're laying waste to everybody they encounter. Pretty much. Um, you'd love to see them play Oklahoma to see what would happen. I mean, I I would not have expected them to beat. Oklahoma, especially not as Oklahoma was at that time. I mean, they were they were a very very potent offense, as I recall. Um, but you thought, you know, if hey, if they beat Missouri, they were number two going into that game. They beat Missouri. <laughs> Who knows? You know, it, it, even if even if Kansas was was not really better than Oklahoma that year, and Kansas probably wasn't really better than Oklahoma that year, but. A year like that, you go into that game undefeated, you know, Big 12 championship game, and was it in Kansas City then? I mean, it it just it was one of those things you could you could see it happening, and then all of a sudden you've got this undefeated Big 12 champion Kansas playing for a national title. I mean, it was in some ways it was very close to happening, and in some ways it was not at all close to happening. <laughs> but yeah. the fact that it was even something to think about is bizarre 
yeah, it's it's absolutely even especially now looking back, it's just such a an anomaly <laughs> in the history of KU football. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about that Oklahoma, or about the Missouri game, uh, thirty six to twenty eight defeat to Missouri. That KU finished on a twenty one to eight run in the fourth quarter, but it wasn't enough. More than eighty thousand fans at Arrowhead. What do you remember about that game? Kind of KU's furious rally. I know Bob Davis has said that if he feels like it went maybe another five minutes, KU would have managed to pull out the win. Did you did you feel that way after it ended, or did you did you kind of think these are two even teams yeah. and Mizzou got the best of them today? Um, I, Mizzou was the better team that day. Um, I, I would I would say that for sure. But uh, it did. I think Bob was kind of right about that. There there was. There was a sense of momentum in KU's direction toward the end of the game, but I thought early it was really maybe the only time that year where KU seemed a little bit overwhelmed. Um, I mean, Jeremy Macklin and Chase Daniel and those guys were so, so, so difficult to stop. And, and mm-hmm. so, so were Todd Racing and Desmond Briscoe and everybody. But you just you watched – after maybe the first quarter, I'm sitting there in the press box going, I don't see how KU is going to stop these guys enough times to make this comeback. And, of course, that ended up being how it went. Um, so, I, you know, I bet if they I bet if they played ten times, Missouri probably wins six, maybe seven. Um, I think Missouri was, was just a little bit, a little bit more talented and, like you mentioned, it, it was almost more a style thing than anything else. It was just the kind of team, because KU struggled with its pass rush, Missouri was the kind of team that could give them a lot of trouble despite their amazing secondary. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you also just a little bit about the mood after the game. KU had missed out on the Big 12 championship opportunity. If my memory is correct, I believe LSU lost that weekend and triple overtime. So I think that game would have, would have given KU a number one ranking in the country. Uh, what was the mood like in the locker room after that game? Who was really kind of wearing it on their face? Kind of just did, did they feel like their, their thoughts for, or their hopes for a BCS game were dashed and that, you know, they would have to settle for something less than what they had hoped. You know, I, they were down, but you never saw those guys get, that down at least not many of them you know there's it's always kind of funny there's always a couple guys that that just wear their hearts on their sleeves um mm-hmm. justin thornton uh, bless his heart was one of those guys you know you you always you always knew about things and and he would be a guy that after a tough loss like that um you could just see it written all over his face and hear it in his voice but um you know the the leadership on that team um including me you know, I think I think they had just so internalized that idea, <laughs> and I think they knew they were. Um, but they also knew, I think, what it was to be in the position they had been in. And uh, you know, of course, it sucks to lose to Missouri, and I I don't remember any of them saying anything about the national title picture. Uh, maybe they did, but that would have been a little bit uh, out of character for them to talk much about that sort of thing. I, um, you know, they were they were a tough bunch, and uh, it showed after that one. Yeah. Uh, well, I kind of wanted to 
talk about the bowl selection process. Mizzou obviously lost to Oklahoma kind of in emphatic fashion in the Big 12 title game. What were the hopes ahead of uh, ahead of the announcement that KU would be playing in the Orange Bowl? And uh, I guess if you had to handicap it going into the selection shows and everything like that, would you have thought Orange Bowl was, was on the radar or would you have thought a team like Missouri or Oklahoma or somebody would have passed KU for that opportunity? Um, if I remember right, I think – in the offices at the Capitol Journal, I think we were more thinking like uh, Cotton Bowl kind of yeah. range. Um, and then when KU got picked, of course, very serious. And uh, <laughs> right after it happened, I, I called. Somebody said that, that what had happened was that KU essentially just bought their way into the Orange Bowl. Mm. So I called Lou Perkins, who was at some dinner in New York, and he answered it in the middle of his dinner. <laughs> he was like, hello. I'm like, yeah, Lou, it's Tully with the Capital Journal. Ah, how you doing, kid? I go, Lou, people are saying that you bought your way into the Orange Bowl. <laughs> what do you have to say? And he goes, nah, no, we didn't. It's not true. So then I, basically, I just quote him. I put that in a story, and they just get deluged with emails from Missouri fans just like calling me a hack and you know a uh, homer and everything. Yeah. <laughs> when, when all I did was quote the athletic director. I mean, I, you know, it was, it was a it was a it was a chaotic situation. I KU did. I don't you know I don't know the all the exact ins and outs of how that went, but uh, I, money was a factor in that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have much doubt. Yeah, uh, that's something you uh, you brought up that I kind of realized I don't have to deal with is uh, an unfortunate casualty of the border cold war is hate emails from yeah. Mizzou fans and hate <laughs> tweets. You get you get them occasionally, but it's more just uh, stuff. Well, you get the wildcats to deal with still. Uh, yeah, in in basketball especially. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm not going to keep you much much longer, but I do want to talk about the Orange Bowl game itself. KU jumped out to a 17 to nothing lead. Keep Talib, as we mentioned, his 60-yard interception return. KU had three turnovers in that game, uh, turned into 17 points. Obviously, the, the blocked field goal, beating Frank Beamer in special teams, a, a huge highlight. Uh, Chris Harris with an interception. Just just uh, uh, from top to bottom, you know, this was a special teams and defense uh, oriented victory and and something that I think a lot of KU fans might not have necessarily expect, expected going into it, but just a defensive battle that uh, it kind of looked mm-hmm. like a lit down game for Virginia Tech and a game that KU was just chomping at the bit to win from the from the first quarter. Yeah, it did, and there there was kind of um, one of those deals where during the bowl week there was a lot of rumors that Virginia Tech's guys were kind of like going out and you know in Miami and not. <laughs> You know they were disappointed. They were they were hoping to play for a national title, whereas this was the greatest thing that had ever happened to KU. And so that's the thing you see in in bowl season sometimes. Um, I mean, Kansas was completely focused. Like you said earlier, they really had something to prove uh, in that game. They 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 wanted to validate their season by by beating a a team as good as Virginia Tech. And that was a good team. That was a very, very physical Virginia Tech team. And that game was very physical. Um, and there was a period, I want to say maybe somewhere in the middle of the game, uh, second or third quarter, where uh, I think it was Brandon Orr was the name of the running back. Um, Virginia Tech started feeding him, and he was, he was pounding on KU pretty good for 
yeah. maybe about half a quarter or a quarter. And then I don't know what happened. They kind of went away from it. And, uh, and you know, the game went how it went. Um, it was – Tlaib's interception was <laughs> one of those plays that – it's like the play that, that every KU fan would hope and dream that their star player would make in the Orange Bowl. And he did it. Like <laughs> runs <laughs> runs it back a pick for a touchdown and high steps in the end zone and gets the flag and everything else. I mean, it was just it was quintessential Akeeb Talib. He he took a risk, he jumped a route, and then he styled it on his way into the end zone and mm-hmm. um it was just was uh he had so much he gave that defense so much attitude and so much swagger and I'm sure that everybody on KU's roster felt like that 15-yard penalty was worth it because it just kind of <laughs> set this tone that, like, no, this is not this is not some underdog situation here, um, you know. Yeah, we're, we belong. <laughs> yeah, keep to leave here, and you're going to have to deal with them. <laughs> I mean, I think if I if if the shoe were on the other foot and and Virginia Tech were to jump out to 17 nothing, I think I don't want to speak for guys I never talked to, but. You know, you, you start to doubt yourself, and well, do we really belong in this game? Did we really yeah. have the season that we we wanted to have? So, I think it was critical in that game that KU was able to jump out to a seventeen to nothing lead. And to your point about Talib, I think I remember in the in the when he was receiving the MVP in the post game, he said he felt like Dion. So that was right out of a page yeah. out of uh, Dion's playbook. Uh, a little bit of prime time. Uh, I got to just wrap up here and talk about the aftermath. There had to be just a, a an overwhelming sense of optimism about KU football after this. I mean, that has to be just an understatement yeah. to say. And and the next year, I think they won the Insight Bowl. I believe mm-hmm. uh, yep. they, they were able to follow it up with another bowl victory. Are you surprised that the team was not able to uh, kind of put together more of a recruiting victory from winning the Orange Bowl and and just just how? astonishingly fast everything unraveled and fell off a cliff i mean i was with you in the same press box as a student journalist for the kansan for ku six to three lost in north dakota state just two or three years <laughs> after this so i mean why why did this was it, was it as simple as losing mangino or do you think if mangino had been around that the same kind of lost in north dakota state might have been on the on the radar just given how you know the zero and seven finish to two thousand nine, or do you think that his oust ousting kind of lost the team, and it just was all just a major dumpster fire until, I guess, lead, I mean, continuing to today. I would say there is almost zero chance that they would have lost to North Dakota State if Mark Mangino was the coach. Yeah. Um, you know they 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 recruited. I wouldn't say that they had a huge. Uh, recruiting boom after that but um you know they signed jock crawford who was a a fairly i think he was a four-star running back and uh, and you know mangino hyped him up a lot which was strange uh he, he normally didn't do that and he, yeah. he he talked pretty big about jock crawford and then he went bust but um but you know they were coming back uh obviously with most of that team so you expected and that they would go to another bowl in 2008 which they did and then 2009 went how it did. And, I, you know, I really think, um, yeah, they lost those last seven games in 2009, but, man, they just had some bad luck. They, they had a, maybe, you know, they had a pass go through Desmond Briscoe's fingers at Colorado 
mm-hmm. um, they stopped Nebraska, and but then Justin Thornton gets called for a face mask, and I think Alex Henry kicks a field goal that beats them. I mean, they they just had some. That, that was still a good team. Uh, I think by the end of the year they were tired. I think that investigation took a toll on them. Um, you could see it all over, especially the veterans like Reesing and and Kerry Meyer and Jake Sharp and those guys. Um, I, I, it just took a lot out of them, I think, to deal with all that. And uh, if Mangino had been retained, um, yeah, they they were losing uh, the core of that Orange Bowl team for sure. But uh, you know, Mangino had signed some. Uh, what was it, Jordan? Jordan Webb? Yeah. 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 Webb was kind of a, you know, he, he looked like Reesing. He played in a similar system and he was not suited to play for what Turner Gill was wanting to do. And I think his confidence got wrecked, uh, by just what happened, um, you know, under Turner. And I just, I feel like things would have been a lot different if, uh, if Mangino had stayed, you'd have had the continuity. I think Jordan Webb would have probably worked out to be a decent player. Um, and they had, like I said, they had, they had some talent, uh, in the, in the system more than, more than normal. Um, but it just, you make a coaching change, you lose some guys and then Turner, I mean, I'm sorry to say, but he, he, he should not have been a head coach. He just, he just should not have been a head coach. Um, and you know, once you lose that North Dakota state game and, uh, it just you could just see I felt like anyway within about a month of covering Turner Gill um I mean uh, hindsight's 2020 20, I know but I'm trying to speak as objectively as I can and say that I really very early on with Turner I was convinced that he was he was not cut out for this and uh well, they managed to wound out right they managed to to beat Georgia Tech the next week, which kind of I, I remember the narrative around the time being like, well, he's not too down after a humiliating loss, and he's not too high after a after a big victory. And then people yeah. just came to realize, covering him, he doesn't have any emotions. He doesn't really have a pulse. <laughs> he's no. kind of, he doesn't get too high or too low about anything. But I think they they had a game at, at Baylor where they just got completely, uh, just just completely just decapitated for lack of a better term. And I think that was when I started to think this, this ship might be uh, completely sinking. Um, but I think that yeah, it's, it's, it was yeah. when, when they, when they lost to North Dakota state, I, I remember Turner Gill comes into that press conference and he just, he acted like nothing had happened. He acted like nothing bad happened. Right. <laughs> and it was just so strange. Like he talks about like the player the of the game or something. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, you expect the coach to come in there and kind of go, kind of, and at least understand that this was embarrassing. But you couldn't even tell that he didn't seem embarrassed. He didn't seem to understand that the fans were embarrassed. <laughs> it was just a very bizarre situation. On, on a, I guess, in a complimentary way, he had a great poker face. But it's just, it's, it's funny <laughs> to me to see how KU has transitioned from Mangino to the complete opposite end of the spectrum with Turner Gill back to. Uh, kind of, I guess, just Mangino without a work ethic and Charlie Weiss, if I could say something <laughs> maybe that might be a little bit harsh. but And then now to kind of David Beatty, who is just, you know, wears his emotions on his sleeve in every other uh, 
part of clothing that I guess he wears. And it's it's just amazing the kind of pendulum that KU has had with its head coaching hires since Mangino. And uh, it's just funny to me to see how they kind of go from players coach to kind of hard-ass type guy back and forth over and over again. Uh, well, I guess, is there anything else you'd like to add before we kind of wrap this up? You've been very generous with your time. I know you guys are going through a lot with your home and, and down there in Houston and, and getting everything recovered and trying to uh, pick up after after that horrible natural disaster that you guys had. I just wanted to kind of get your parting thoughts on that team and that era and uh, obviously the the best academic year KU has ever had with winning the national title that that's uh that spring did you did you feel like this is the way it's always going to be i'm going to be covering two of the most successful programs in in college sports uh for for yeah, you know, I mean, the rest of my tenure here <laughs> it was my first year on the beat and nobody ever gives me any credit for causing all that but <laughs> right um, yeah i, I uh, you know of course with the basketball team you expect that it's going to be like that a lot um i would have thought they'd have won another title by now but um you know, in what was going to happen was as long as Mangina was there, it was going to be five and seven, six and six, and the occasional eight and five, nine and four. Um, I, I thought it was going to be like that under him. I mean, he had really established that by then. They, you know, I think they went four and seven in in uh, two thousand four, um, and after that. Uh, you know, pretty, pretty solid. So I didn't think they were going to, you know, I, a lot of times after seasons like that, you see this regardless of which program it is. Um, a team will have this kind of season where they come out of nowhere and they have a great year. And what everybody does is they, they, they just kind of assume, okay, well, this is the new normal. This is what it is now. Um, I definitely didn't think that was going to be the case with KU, but uh, I thought they were going to be, Big 12 North contenders forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. Uh, Well, Tully, I really appreciate your time again. He's uh, Tully Corcoran. You can read his stuff at the big lead.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Tully Corcoran, and you can follow me on Twitter at the Matt Galloway. Uh, Next week we'll be back and we'll be talking a little bit of the current KU team and a little bit of the fallout from their opening weekend against Southeast Missouri State. As I said, they will be playing at 6 p.m. Saturday on uh, or at Memorial Stadium. So uh, we'll have full reaction to that and kind of the fallout from that. But Tully, uh, I definitely don't speak for myself when I say that, uh, or I guess I speak for myself and many others when I say it's good to hear from you again and good to hear from you uh, talking KU again. Sure, man. All right. Well, for Tully Corcoran, this is Matt Galloway saying thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week.